welcome to episode 248 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. This show was engineered on Tuesday, June the 30th, 2020. The Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast is brought to you by Jensen USA, where you'll always find a great selection of products at amazing prices with unparalleled customer service. For more information, just go to jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. Hey everybody, it's David from the Fredcast Cycling Podcast at www.thefredcast.com. I'm one of the hosts and producers of the Spokesman Cycling Roundtable Podcast. For show notes, links, and all sorts of other information, please visit our website at www.the-spokesmen.com. And now, here are the spokesmen. Hi there, I'm Carlton Reed, and I'm real. And so is David. But the slightly tinny voice at the top of the show, well, that was Daniel. And he's not real. He's a computer simulated voice. And I'm using him for a reason. A wee while ago, I recorded a group chat with Superintendent Andy Cox, Professor Rachel Aldred and Chris Boardman. Sadly, Chris's audio didn't record properly. So I replaced him with Daniel. And yes, I tried to find a soft Scouse voice simulator, but didn't find one. All of Chris's words, as spoken by Daniel, were the words that Chris actually used. I was able to transcribe them, uh, but the audio was too faint to use on this show. So, here we go. And remember, the mystery voice is reading out what Chris Boardman actually said. Uh, on, on today's show, uh, I've got three fabulous guests, two of whom people will be very, very familiar with, and that's uh, Rachel, Rachel Aldred. Hi there, Rachel. Hi, Carlton. Hi there. And the second person who, whenever you introduce him, you always say, and I've seen this done before, he needs no introduction, and that is uh, Chris Boardman. Hello, Chris. Good afternoon. And uh, my third guest today is, if you don't mind me saying this, Andy, um, and don't take this the wrong way, but you're a bit of a cult figure at the moment with uh, people on social media because you're doing some amazing stuff. So, Andy, tell us, tell us what I'm missing about your title. So tell us your, your, your job description and what you do for a living and then people will go, oh, that Andy. Well, good afternoon, Carlton. Thank you for that introduction. Um, well, my name's um, Andy Cox. I'm a detective superintendent. I lead our Vision Zero programme across London uh, for the Metropolitan Police. Vision Zero is our stated ambition of eradicating death and serious injury on our roads linked to collisions by 2041. And before I get into bring Chris and, and to Rachel, I'd, I'd like to basically explore uh, road policing and how that impacts potentially on, um, on people not in motor cars. But I'd just like to talk to you first, Andy, just about um, that role you have and, and the role you've carved out. How, how new is that? Well, I suppose it can be a little awkward talking about oneself, but here goes. Um, so just I've been in policing for just over 20 years. Um, I've... Initially worked in Surrey before moving to Northamptonshire and then joining the Metropolitan Police in 2016. Uh, for most of my career, I've been a detective. I've worked in a variety of different roles, um, had a very diverse career working on, on, on leading murder investigation, on kidnap, 
and leading child abuse investigations as well. Um, I've been a superintendent for eight years. And actually, the, the first post I had was to head up Rose Policing in Northamptonshire. Um, and I do look back to that role and with great pride and satisfaction. I really, really enjoyed it. So I'd always wanted to go back into that field. So when the opportunity came to lead Vision Zero at the start of 2019 in London, I jumped at it. I really think the role has huge opportunity to save life um, and to tackle crime. And I think having a detective in charge of it is very different. It's un- unusual, um, but it means perhaps I bring a different perspective. I really do see the link to saving life. I know that work that we've done in the past and, and currently I believe is having that impact. And obviously that's hugely satisfying. Um, but I think the link to tackling criminality is a really important one. It's so often missed. You know, even if we take just the simple not wearing a seatbelt, um, that's a significant risk actually in terms of road safety, but also it's an indicator of somebody that's prepared to essentially ignore the law. So what else are they prepared to do? And I think by taking that mindset, you can often draw a link between other crime and traffic offence crime. Um, And it is a crime and that's often missed as well. But I think having that perspective of looking at it in a slightly different way allows opportunity to really get into who the driver is, what else they might be doing, you know, and is there anything else that we should know about from a policing perspective? And fundamentally, that supports the lawful road user. And that's something I've been really keen to take forward in in this role and in the past, um, to essentially support for lawful, law-abiding citizens. And I think so often the very vast majority of lawful road users are exposed to additional risk and people committing crimes, um, which puts them at risk and is, is just unacceptable. So that's a bit about me. I suppose that's a bit about why I so enjoy Division Zero role and what um, yeah, my passion for it um, relates to. And you're using social media to great effect to get that message across, basically. This is what we're doing. Well, I think social media is a tool which gets a message out there really quickly to a large audience. Um, my following is growing, um, which is helpful. and is now covered by a number of journalists. So, so for instance, I have in the past um, tweeted a message which is in a very short space of time, then scrolling along the, the screen on, on Sky News, so it can reach a, a particularly large audience. I think what I've tried to do with it is have a mindset for who I'm communicating the message to. I think very often police accounts can be quite corporate. Um, they can be quite police-to-police based. So I've tried to avoid the sort of internal communication as such within Twitter and, and communicate a clear message to, you know, is it the dangerous driver? Is it the lawful road user? Is it the broader citizen? Is it, you know, the cyclist, the, the pedestrian and, and so on? So essentially having a really clear message for what I want to and who I want to target with it. Um, I think using data. So if I go back to the early stages of um, starting to tweet on this issue, I, I, I did get some difficult uh, communications from people who were saying things like traffic officers are simply revenue raising. Why don't you go and tackle a criminal and so on? So I felt there was a need to educate the public, in my view, around what we actually do um, and why we do it. So very much reinforcing this is about saving life. This is about tackling crime and it's about responding to local community concerns. 
Um, so I have used data to help with that. I've been able to talk about how much killed and serious injury collisions there are uh, on, on within London and elsewhere. I've been able to talk about, for instance, a link to uninsured drivers. And we seize about 50 uninsured vehicles a day on average in London. And I think that's really hit home with the public. And then by explaining those people are, are, are six to seven times more likely to have a fatal collision. They're more likely to fail to stop, have an impact significantly on those left injured behind. And actually two thirds are more uh, are likely to be criminally active in other crime within the last two years. And that sort of message has really had a resonance, I think, with the public who thought, oh, wow, you know, that's that's that was surprising. I think they were shocked at the sort of statistics that backed it up. And likewise, when I've been able to talk about speeding or other fatal four activities and roads that we target and, and so on, it's had a very significant Im- impact. And I think, for example, the A10, which is one road which had had about five years worth of really embedded issues, both from a road safety perspective and antisocial behaviour perspective as well, and just general local community concerns. Um, we started an operation um, in May 2019 and part of that plan was to ex- is to communicate very extensively um, around what, we've, what we're doing, why we're doing, when we're there, um, what tactics we're using, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. And I think the public, and I know this from the comms that I've seen, were initially sceptical um, and now overwhelmingly supportive. That's had an impact um, because killed and serious injury collisions have dropped, um, collisions overall have dropped. And the road um, looks and feels safer um, is the feedback we're getting. We've also influenced partners through um, proactively communicating and brought them into the problem solving plan as well. So I think it's had a, a, there is a place essentially for open and transparent communication. And I think Twitter is so easy to use in the sense that it's short. Um, it's almost like the headlines and it can stimulate debate as part of that, part of that plan. Can I go to Chris then? And just Chris, ask, because Andy is very much talking about this being crime. And that often grates with people because they think, well, hang on, what do you mean crime? You know, I'm just going over the little bit over the speed limit. That's not a crime. In your um, experience and your point of view with your, your maybe your current role as, uh, as uh, Cycling and Walking Commissioner for Greater Manchester, is the fact that speeding or road... Any, any road infractions is not viewed as a criminal offence by many people. Does that um, make a, 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 a... Is that a big issue? Well, I think what Andy's done and what attracted me to his social media is depressingly refreshing. He's simply spoken to the facts. He's been very careful. His position is evidence, response, opinion. So, we're not seeking to deal with crime in an equal way. It's actually looking at what causes the most harm. We focus resources to get the biggest return for the public. It's drivers who tend to do the most harm. When I say depressingly refreshing, it's because that ought to be standard, but it isn't. It's a very, very positive position with the public and coming from somebody who, in inverted commas, is not a cyclist is so important. All our messages right now need to come from authority figures and those authority figures should be giving the message that's absolutely grounded in evidence. We've got mountains of the stuff. So, it's quite impressive and something to get behind, because it just makes sense. Road crime is a real crime and I think that's something that desperately needs to be addressed. It could change our roads and give people a genuine choice to not have to drive.
So, so Rachel, let's bring you in on that roughly the same question, but coming at it from a um, a non motorized user's point of view, which is which is your uh, your academic shtick. So, is this is Andy's approach is is making this public perception of this this is a crime? Will that feed through into safer streets? I think it's about changing a culture um, as well as the specific enforcement activities. I think it's about changing the expectations that people have of behaviour on the roads. And this was what got me interested in this topic, the whole topic of transport and active travel to start off with, was the way in which behaviours on the roads, which are a public space, um, you know, were really quite different from behaviours that were seen as acceptable in other contexts. And part of that, as Chris was alluding to as well, is around risk to others, that somehow we, we, we don't see risk to others on the roads in the same way as we maybe do in other contexts. And one example of that is the way in which traditionally risk is measured in relation to transport, that, you know, one might say walking is dangerous or cycling is dangerous. And that's because of the risk people experience. But it's not the walking or cycling that's dangerous. It's actually the motor vehicle use, because four hours to five cyclist fatalities involve a motor vehicle. It's not cycling itself that is dangerous. And that is an important part of the cultural shift, I think, that needs to happen. And is Andy part of that cultural shift, Rachel? Very much so. And I think it's really important to see um, the, the activities of police services around this and related issues. So another example is around close pass um, policing and the way in which that has become quite widespread. And that is really important because that is around subjective safety and the way that non-motorised users are treated on the road. So it's a range of different issues. But I think seeing this is important, seeing this as a priority, seeing road crime as something that matters, that kills and injures people is, is really crucial. Yes. So, Andy, tell us about the actual, there's a new team and crime is in the title, which I know shocks quite a few people on social media. So tell us about that, that crime team and why it's important to have that word in there. Yes, we've created and launched the road crime team. It's a highly professional team. It's got the full range of skill sets a traffic officer would want. So it's got the ability to pursue those that fail to stop, it's got all the, 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 the sort of ability to stop vehicles. They've been handpicked for the role. And the road crime team, um, the name is really important, as you've highlighted. I think it's important that we use the word crime. Um, so often traffic offences are, are not considered crimes. We felt it's important to, to use that terminology to show the impact actually road crime has on lawful road users. But also that there's so often links between traffic offences and other criminality. It's not unusual for us to stop a vehicle to then find drugs, to find weapons, to find somebody that's wanted for serious offences. Um, and I think if we just reflect for a minute, those that are prepared to breach traffic offence law, maybe that's a, a mindset to breach other criminality as well. So we've introduced a road crime team. It's a relatively small amount of officers so far, but we do ex plan to extend that um, in, in the next month or two. Um, it was built on the concept of targeting priority people, priority places and priority themes. And by that, I mean really intelligence-led, absolutely working on the right roads at the right time. So those roads most likely to have killed and serious injury or um, collision data to back that up looking at very high harm offenders, those perhaps with multiple disqualifications, those with a history of bad driving, those currently disqualified and so on, and really targeting in on, 
on them. Um, and also looking at what we'd say is our fatal four, that is essentially speeding is absolutely our priority within that, but other fatal four offences as well. So drink and drug, drive, using the phone whilst distracted and not wearing your seatbelt. And essentially focusing in, therefore, on our most risky issues and most risky themes and people. Um, it builds on the success of an operation we ran and trialled in the summer last year. Well, for three months, we deployed um, on 50 occasions um, and we targeted along those mindsets that we've applied for the road crime team. And in just 50 deployments, we made over 100 arrests. We seized over 75 vehicles. We found drugs, weapons, wanted people confiscated cash you know it was a really significant opportunity i feel to support the lawful road user to tackle the criminal who uses their car and one of the phrases i often use is um of course not every driver is a criminal but those that have reached the age of 17 and a criminal also use a car uh, use a vehicle so I think when you have the mindset of actually criminals are likely to be looking to use a car to, or vehicle to go about their their criminality, um, you can see why we might introduce a road crime team to tackle those individuals, deny them use of the roads. And actually sometimes the, the penalties for driving offences can be more severe than others and it gives us an opportunity to tackle so much criminality just through tackling their their driving issues as well. Um, so that's the purpose of the team um, and I'm delighted with the inroads it's made already just in the very first day it arrested people drink driving it arrested people that had weapons in their car um, it found people that were wanted so very successful in the first day and that has been built over the few weeks that it's been operating now andy and uh cyclist infractions is that uh, part of the the road team's uh, remit too and the road crime team was essentially born out of tackling issues proportionately to their risk so often on social media i find criticism of the police for not enforcing cyclists who commit offences. Firstly, that's wrong. We do enforce cyclists, for example, those that breach a, a red light. And we do very much try and educate those cyclists around the risks that they pose themselves through um, breaching a red light, as an example. However, we have to be proportionate. And therefore, we enforce, a compared to all enforcement of traffic offences and crime, it's a very, very small percentage of our work because we target our resource to match the risk that is presented. And while cyclists, of course, it's, there's, there is risk attached to cyclists harming another individual or themselves, it is very, very low in comparison to a vehicle harming another vehicle user and another cyclist or a pedestrian or just a, simply a road user so my point is we focus resource on risk and what the road crime team has done is focus our resource on the greatest risk but i do want to address the fact that we are there we look to support the vulnerable road user we target resources specifically in locations where we know vulnerable road users are likely to be and that because they're there the, the 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 driving is so important because um, illegal driving, high speeds, whatever it may be, um, presents such a risk to cyclists and pedestrians that we're right to target those issues because that's where our risk is. So we sign our resource accordingly. So there there has been some social police social media accounts which have had that 
that exact message. So West Midlands are very good at that. Other forces aren't so good. Do, do we, as a country as a whole, do we suffer from not having all police forces, in effect, talking from this, the, or singing from the same hymn sheet, Andy? So I think there is scope for some improvement on national coordination around roads policing. Um, as an example, if we take dash cam, um, there is an element of postcode lottery around that. So some areas are not using it, some are using it um, to an extent and some are using it fully. Um, I know, for instance, some members of the public contact me to say, look, we'd really like this footage used, um, but we are not having any uh, scope to do so within the area that uh, they live. And I think to, to support that, we introduced a national working group involved all the, the police forces that were able to attend. And we're looking at how we might take forward a piece of work that makes that consistent. Um, clearly for us, London drivers drive elsewhere and people that drive outside of London drive in London. So I think it's in everybody's interest to have a consistent approach around dash cam. And of course, that goes for every uh, issue, I suppose. There will be some local uh, variances, of course, based on the environment or the, 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 you know, the support locally for, for activities. But I think if we take the approach that we've used as Vision Zero around targeting the most risky people, places and themes, I think that's an approach that can be used anywhere successfully. Um, we do have national meetings now with colleagues. I chair one around collision investigation. I attend another one around roads policing in general. Um, and they are actively attended by forces around the country. We do share good practice, ideas, and so on. So we shared, for example, the work we've done on the A10 around tackling that sort of antisocial behaviour, high-speed driving, um, and the success that's had. And we've listened to other um, examples from around the country as well, which we take on board. Um, there's also the Department for Transport Rose Policing Review that's undertaken at the moment, and that review is looking at um, you know all rose policing aspects from technology to computer systems to you know how we do our activities day to day on the street um so that's a, a great opportunity to coordinate it in a little you know in a smoother more joined up fashion um there's also the hmrc review that's been undertaken recently and i think that's due to report imminently um so that would present again an opportunity to look at how we nationally perform in terms of roads policing and how that's coordinated i really like the idea of this coordination hub that looks at identifying through analysis the the, the most dangerous roads based on killed and serious injury collisions and some other data over the long term identifies them has some responsibility for making resources target those areas looks at the most high high harm offenders make sure they're for example on our impr database um, and really hones activities around our fatal four. I think that coordination hub could help put it all together nationally and pull loads of good work together so it's not done in isolation. But at least I can absolutely with confidence say there are good discussions taking place and I do share my ideas and vice versa with, with national colleagues. Rachel, would you welcome that? Something like nationally national guidelines for all police forces, so not just West Midlands being an exemplar, not just people like Andy being an exemplar. Should we have something that's, you know, national guidelines that everybody, every police force should adhere to? 
Um, I mean, obviously, it would depend on the guidelines. But if Andy um, say we're helping with them, then I would like to think that this would be something that would be uh, would be useful. I mean, there's there's a range of issues. I mean, one issue that I've been thinking about lately is around language and how collisions um, are described, which can be quite important because it's reproduced in local media and it then can reinforce or challenge perceptions about uh, around responsibility on the road. So th- there's a range of things that it would be better to have um, more standardisation on, I guess. So coll- collision, not accident, you're going at? Yeah, yeah, for instance, and around how the interaction and how sort of how blame is potentially attributed or not. So, yeah. Mm. And Chris, can I ask, what's your relationship like with with police in, in your area? And, and how do they view the, the conversation we're having now with Andy? Do they view it in, in, in the same way? Things are changing now. There's not a lot I can add to the comment about data, and it's not surprising that I agree wholeheartedly about the evidence-based approach. For the last several years, whenever I have been asked about cyclists running red lights, the response has always been, absolutely, anybody should be prosecuted. But where you've got to have resources concentrated, it makes sense to find the most harm and work backwards, which is essentially a version of what Andy was saying. Um. The point I'd like to add which touches on Rachel's mention of close passes is what we didn't do is we don't look at the wider implications of crime, and the knock-on effects, so for example not wearing a helmet. I remember when I started on the government advice body, I remember it was in about 2000, and that brought forward a private member's bill on helmets which I thought made sense, and we were tasked with going away and looking at the implications of doing that. So I was forced to personally go look at the wider implications of that and I realized it would effectively kill more people than it saved if you take into account people stop doing a beneficial activity and saw it as dangerous and so on and so forth. So I think people seeing speeding as not a crime until it causes an accident then you can see it's a crime. I think that's better storytelling if you like to get the message across that this person just drove at 10 miles over the speed limit didn't hurt anybody what's the problem? and tell that story about the close pass and the implications. Do you know what, just jump in the car, and drive a kilometre to school. That is what's happening with kids and why they don't go on to the street. In Greater Manchester, we have 250 million car journeys every single year that are less than a kilometre, for predominantly that reason. So it's not just about road crime, but how you talk about it. We need to make sure people understand what the implications are of just speeding. Mm. So, Andy, I'm looking outside now to a a, a beautiful blue sky. It's a beautiful day out there. It's not too far away that I can actually, I can probably hear normally, a dual carriageway that isn't too far away from me, in which at the moment it's pretty much empty. There are speed cameras on there, but people are basically speeding on it fairly frequently. So you've come to the fore during lockdown by posting lockdown speeding offences where people are really, really going way over the limit because they can now. So so what's your experience been during lockdown of of those motorists who, who you say they're a minority, but who, who are really going way beyond, you know, just what Chris was saying, like five, ten miles an hour over the limit? Well, since lockdown commenced, we have seen significant rise in speeds. Um, We know less congestion on the road. Um, We think there's somewhere between 40 and 50% less volume on the roads. That, of course, has created 
an, an opportunity with the environment for people to speed, but it's unlawful to do so. Of course, the limit is unchanged. But in zones 20, 40 and 60, we're actually seeing, on average, the speeds are above the limit. So that's on average. Imagine what the upper end of those are. In every speed zone from 20 to 70, data shows speeds have increased. And we've seen a rise in extreme speeding as well. Now, extreme speeders are those drivers who can only be dealt with by way of going to court. There's no chance to, for example, go on a speed awareness workshop or get a fixed penalty notice. Your speeds are so uh, excess that there's only the court will hear the case. Um, so, for example, we have seen 151 mile an hour um, in a 70. We have seen 142, 140. We've seen 134 in a 40. And we've seen a 73 in a 20. Um, and that's extremely concerning when you consider those lower speed zones, 20s, 30s and 40s, where we are seeing significant speeds, uh, where your key workers are likely to be um, commuting to work, using cycles and pedestrians going across London, and are particularly a vulnerable road user. So it's deeply, deeply concerning. We have tried, um, really robustly tried to draw a link to a, the consequences to you, but the risk of speed. So, and I've, of course, personally seen this devastation in families, but by speeding, they risk a fatal or serious injury collision um, and and the risks are obviously much greater. Um, so they might devastate their life, somebody else's life and their family's life and so on. I've drawn a link to the NHS because, of course, who's going to deal with those people seriously injured or fatally injured, it'll be the NHS, where they're going to go to hospital. Um, what are they currently dealing with the NHS, COVID-19? Um, so they're abstracted from dealing with COVID-19 patients. Those that get seriously injured, we know about the underlying health issues linked to COVID-19 and how that makes you more vulnerable, where you're going to have an underlying health issue and you're going to go to hospital where COVID-19 is being treated. So there's huge impact and risk to them, to the NHS, and of course, other emergency services. But I've also drawn a link to the whole issue around the consequences to them and their license. So, you know, by being enforced, a lot of these will lose their license because of the extreme speeds they're going. That'll have consequences to um, their family circumstance, their finance, potentially their job. Um, so a whole host of um, problems for them. And I've tried to stand back and say, if we look at, as an example, drink driving, it's rightly been socially unacceptable for about the last 25, 30 years. Speeding needs to become socially unacceptable. How many people would challenge a drink driver, listen to your show, would challenge a drink driver, but don't challenge a speeding driver? But speeding driving is the thing that creates the most risk at the moment for us. So I ask those people just to reflect on that and actually make speeding socially unacceptable. Challenge your friends, your family, yourself, your colleagues not to speed if you're in a car with somebody that's speeding ask them not to and basically make a significant difference surely the purpose of any journey is to go from a to b safely not being subject to police enforcement not injuring anybody keeping everything you know um, sensible in terms of getting from, to your destination and actually i always try and point out how many times you see somebody perhaps do an overtake on you that puts them at risk anybody else at risk but actually they're stuck at the traffic lights a short distance down the road anyway. So how much time does it actually save you by speeding? And then you factor in the risk that you pose yourself, others, the risk to the NHS, the risk to emergency services, the risk to your finance and your circumstances and your mobility for just 
those maybe two, three minutes that it saves off your journey. So don't be complacent. Complacency is undoubtedly our biggest issue here. It can and does happen to people who didn't think it would. And I've met them, their families. They are devastated. Their life has changed for good and, and in a really dramatically bad way. Um, so don't be complacent. Focus on the purpose of your journey going from A to B. Um, make it socially unacceptable. And, and, and by doing so, have the greatest chance to stay safe. Rachel, a lot of Andy's team, his enforcement, are on for want of a better expression, fast roads, so like the A10, where, where cyclists and pedestrians aren't really, you know, going on those roads. So is it really that much of a problem to have people speeding on those roads, just so long as they don't speed on the, you know, the, the 20 mile an hour roads? Or does somebody who do you think who are speeding on that road is naturally going to speed on every road? I mean, I, th- I think, yeah, I would tend to agree with the latter, that if people are willing to speed on those roads, they're probably going to be behaving badly on other roads. But I don't think those roads are free of cyclists and pedestrians either. I mean, the A10, it depends what part of the A10 you're talking about, but there are certainly quite a lot of cyclists on some parts of it. There are people who have to cross the road as pedestrians or have to walk along it. So, you know, particularly in a, in a London context, you some of those um, some of those roads have multiple functions and you will get fast-moving motor traffic alongside pedestrians and potentially cyclists as well. And Chris, on, on the, the, the pandemic front, do you see, after we are back, if, if, it, if it is possible, if it is possible to become a, a normal again, do you think things will have changed on the roads, on getting people on bikes, pedestrians, the things that you've been talking about for many, many years, do you think you're going to have an easier sell after lockdown has finished? Or do you think we'll just go back to uh, business as usual? The thing about lockdown is that it's finite. It's a short period diverted into our lives. But I think what we now define as important is not what we would have done some months ago. Now we have a choice. I try very hard not to use the word opportunity. People are dying. However, you can't ignore the good that has also happened. We discovered what quiet roads are like. I can't imagine any other circumstances where the world, the whole world, has stopped driving. Many of our key workers now use bikes. Our stats told us that all the journeys went down, but cycling, which was on 2.5% mode share is now up significantly. And if you ask anyone, which do you prefer in terms of transport then you wouldn't be surprised by the answer. Having said that, we have got a very small window to implement measures that both aids recovery and allows you to keep travelling at a safe distance apart, and give the opportunity not to get back into cars. I am scared we will lose the chance to redefine normal. It's an opportunity. There, I have used the word. It's an opportunity to make a new normal. We should do everything in our power to make that happen. And at this point, I'd just like to remind everybody that, of course, that isn't the real Chris Boardman. That's a computer simulation. Uh, But I would now like to go across to the real David for a a short ad break. Hey, Carlton, thanks so much. And it's it's always my pleasure to talk about our advertiser. This is a longtime loyal advertiser. You all know who I'm talking about. It's Jensen USA at JensenUSA.com slash the spokesman. I've been telling you for years now, years, that Jensen is the place where you can get a great selection of every kind of product that you need for your cycling lifestyle at amazing prices. And what really sets them apart, 
because of course there's lots of online retailers out there, but what really sets them apart is their unbelievable support. When you call and you've got a question about something, you'll end up talking to one of their gear advisors. And these are cyclists. I've been there. I've seen it. These are folks who who ride their bikes to and from work. These are folks who ride at lunch, who go out on group rides after work because they just enjoy cycling so much. Uh, and, and so you know that when you call, you'll be talking to somebody who has knowledge of the products that you're calling about. If you're looking for a new bike, whether it's a mountain bike, a road bike, a gravel bike, a fat bike, what are you looking for? Go ahead and check them out. Jensen USA, they are the place where you will find everything you need for your cycling lifestyle. It's jensenusa.com slash the spokesman. We thank them so much for their support and we thank you for supporting Jensen USA. All right, Carlton, let's get back to the show. Thanks to Not At All Simulated David. And uh, let's get back to the show with uh, me asking a question of Andy. I'd like to ask the same question. Uh, you know, is this, as, as Chris says, is this a pivot point? Can this change? I'd like to ask both uh, Rachel and Andy that question. But first, Andy, I'd just like to ask you, because a point came up in there from, from what Chris was saying. Is it on your radar that... After this lockdown finishes, potentially motoring could uh, could double overnight. Is is that something that you are looking at as a force? Is it something that you'll you'll deal with that later if it ever happens? Are, are you are you predicting forwards basically? So we do use an uh, analysis of data to work out what the traffic volumes are, what the demands are, where the rises in speed are, what roads are the most problematic. And I think, of course, post-lockdown, we are likely to see a significant upturn in, in traffic volume. However, I think with the change that, that's that been forced upon people, I think it will create a different culture as well. So I do expect to see perhaps more working from home, perhaps people looking to walk or cycle more than they previously did. Um, so I think we will have to be cognizant of that. We will have to make sure our 20, 30 and 40 mile an hour zones are really appropriately supported. That vulnerable road user who are exposed to more risk because of obviously the, the, the nature of their travel. Um, and we just need to make sure that you know, we're in the right time, right place. So the strategy essentially does stay the same. It is targeting the most risky people, the most risky roads and the most risky themes. Our comm strategy will be more the same but reinforced. We will look to obviously utilise our cycle safety team, uh, our highly visible patrols, um, things like the community road watch schemes. Again, it really reinforcing a visible presence where it matters most, but recognising a change in volume of traffic and, of course, maybe a style of, of, of change as well in terms of the mode of transport people are choosing to use post-lockdown and post all the learning that's come from this enforced period and, and change in, in working culture. And, and going to you with that, is this going to be a, a pivot? I know this is not data driven. This is something that's going to be more gut driven. Do you, Andy, do you think things will change after lockdown? Do you think driving culture will have changed? Well, I absolutely do think it's a pivotal moment for road safety. Um, obviously, London and elsewhere. I think we've got this captive audience at home. Um, so... Our strategy using social media and communications on television and newspapers um, and on radio um, is more effective than it would otherwise be because people are actually in a position to, to, to hear the message. Um, I think we have successfully drawn a link to 
the risk of speeding to serious injury, collisions and fatal collisions and the devastation that causes the impact to their licence and the consequences to them, but also because of the COVID-19 challenge for the NHS. I think by drawing a link to the emergency services and in particular the NHS and the impact it has on those that are so busy dealing with such a significant issue, I'm hoping it really does influence a change in driving culture. And I think we've really got to take this opportunity and not row back from it, really consistently reinforce that. I think we need hard-hitting campaigns nationally. I think we need to use a collection of agencies. So involving nurses and doctors as part of the message is really important. Involving families affected is really important and really making that change. But also then, as a pivotal moment, looking at our whole strategy around vulnerable road users, the, the infrastructure, you know, the use of the vehicle, how we might create a better, safer place for, for all forms of travel, I think is really, really important. And looking at the legislation, obviously I'm a police officer, so I work with whatever legislation I'm given. Um, but actually, I do have a voice on the subject. And I think we could look at, for instance, some of the deterrents that we use. So I just draw a very quick comparison. Let's say somebody driving 150 miles an hour, the devastation that person could cause is so vast and significant. If they get charged with speeding only because the sentences tend to get strict once a collision happens and somebody's left in a, you know, somebody unfortunately dies or is left in a a permanently disabled state, um, you know, then of course then sentences are hard. But before that, so if they only get caught for speeding, the sentences can be less severe. And I sometimes draw a comparison with if somebody was to take a knife onto the street, not harm anybody, we'd expect the sentences to be really severe for actually, and quite rightly so, for carrying a, carrying a weapon. But if you're driving at 150 miles an hour or you're driving at extreme speed, you know, the 73 and the 20, the devastation you can cause is equally severe. Um, so I think we just need to look at our whole sentencing and criminal justice plan um, and really look at it from a deterrence perspective and supporting lawful road users I work with whatever legislation I can, um, but I think you know sometimes we just need to recognise the risk posed by these people. And I think we've got that opportunity at the moment because we have a captive audience, we have people that recognise the impacts it has on our NHS, we have people that recognise the impact it has on all of our services, and we have a really, really good opportunity to make our roads a safer place for all. Okay, and, and Rachel, so the, I'm going to ask you the same question, but I'll just frame it in a slightly different way, in that... I'm absolutely sure you'll be very familiar with all of the the academic research which shows that the, 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 the likeliest time to make somebody switch their travel behaviour is when, for instance, they move home or they make other big life changes. So you couldn't get much bigger a life change for most people than what we are currently living through. So do you see this as not just an opportunity, not just a pivot point, but something that will actually genuinely change things? Yes. I mean, I I think the the impact of disruption on travel behaviour is quite well studied. And unfortunately, often it happens in a negative way. So people um, have children, they start driving more, for instance, but also in a positive way in terms of shifts to more sustainable modes. Really, it's the chance that people get to think rather than acting out of habit and to reevaluate what they do and often in quite difficult circumstances like like at the moment. Um, And some people are 
traveling more actively than they have before. So key workers taking up cycling, for instance, at the same time as people who might be habitual cycle commuters are now uh, working from home, like myself. Um, so there is an opportunity um, to change. We've seen um, it, the, the increased use of cycling at the weekends in particular. Uh, and we've seen in the UK as well the explicit a discussion of the right and need to take daily exercise, which can be by walking or cycling. So, yeah, I think there is the potential for people's behaviour to change longer term, and particularly if, you know, there isn't going to be a simple end to lockdown. There will be a series of different stages that, you know, some of them might involve more commuting trips returning, some of them might involve more leisure trips returning, and this needs to be planned for. The support needs to be in place because, you know, things could... Um, end up in a very negative direction so if people are nervous about walking on the footway because there isn't enough space to safely pass other people in terms of infection then that could put people off walking on the other hand if we can reallocate road space to walking that creates more incentive to walk that means that people are more likely to walk it discourages car use and we could have a, a, a virtuous circle from that but there will be a lot of choices policy choices that need to be made now and in the near future to, to ensure that we get some of the benefits mm-hmm uh, I did a story, I'll come to Chris with this one first, but I did a story on the World uh, Health Organization who were being lobbied uh, behind the scenes by lots of different people to make a recommendation that in this, this, this lockdown, in this pandemic, uh, WHO could make uh, a recommendation to national governments around the world to reduce speed limits. Um, so, Chris, it, it is, would that have been something that you would have liked to see? And would that make any difference at all? Yes, reducing speed limits is a positive thing. We have to think hard about what we can do quickly and then what needs to be done longer term. We've just heard discussion from Andy about consequences. That's what it boils down to. Like the majority of human beings, we react to consequences. What's the easiest thing? What's acceptable, what's not acceptable? That's part of a longer-term fix, but there are measures that we can do that aren't just down to the police. We can slow people down without spending much. We can reshape roads. There's a lot we can do with infrastructure. It's not just about speed enforcement. We have some temporary powers given to us. We need to see what can be done quickly, and that isn't too scary for politicians to actually want to do something with it. Possibly the biggest opportunity for us right now is that it's very scary, at a political level, not to be doing something. It's very scary as a politician not to be doing something when it's clear that attitudes are changing. We need to take action to reduce speed and increase the number of people travelling without cars. Mm. Now, Rachel, when, when I did that WHO story, and, and it was a very high up individual in WHO 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 did want it to happen, but didn't want to be seen actually to use this as, as a, in inverted commas, an opportunity. So they didn't want to be seen to be using the pandemic as, as something to, to do their, their favourite thing, because they've always wanted to, to get WHO to, to, to lobby for this, but they, they thought it was politically inexpedient to do so. However, a few days later, WHO issued... Um, a, a missive to national governments to restrict uh, the sale of alcohol. So here they were doing something that's quite, you know, contentious, uh, you know, take away alcohol from people. 
And yet they were perfectly willing to do that, yet they weren't willing to ask people to slow down. So do you think there's, there's, there's just... Because the driving culture is so embedded, it, it's so hard to get something like an organisation like WHO to actually move on something that could save lots of lives. Just as, you know, the, the, if you do better at, at, in the pandemic, that saves lives, but reducing speed also saves lives. Yeah, I mean, I don't know the details of those specific, you know, all the negotiations that went on over those specific issues. But I do think it, challenging car culture is always hard and it doesn't get easier. It's hard in Copenhagen taking space away from car parking to allocate to other uses. You know, it's hard everywhere. Um, but, you know, it's clear that for something like um, speeding and speed limits, the evidence is really clear. And I, I yeah, I would have liked to have seen um, them making a recommendation on that because I think the case for it is so strong, particularly in the past pandemic when national health services are under such a lot of strain. Now Andy I did come to you when I was doing this WHO story and you you gave me a a point of view that was understandably anodyne, understandably politically correct in that you couldn't be seen to be asking for speed limits to be uh, you know recommended by WHO. Is there anything you can add to that topic, to what maybe Chris has said or what Rachel said? I think the speed limit debate is an interesting one. Um, I recently ran a poll on Twitter. Again, um, there was support to to reduce the speed limit. Um, I, again, as I mentioned just now, I work with the legislation I'm enabled to work within, um, but I do recognise the risk of speed. Um, the Isle of Man, for instance, introduced legislation very quickly into this lockdown period that had a national speed limit reduction. But I really think that it is a question, unfortunately, for the legislators, all I would say from a policing perspective of speed is our biggest challenge. We know during the lockdown period it's our biggest challenge. We are seeing exceptional speeds. Um, But even a 73 and a 20, I sometimes wonder whatever speed limit was in place, that person would be driving at 73. Um, You know, and it's deeply frustrating. Um, And that's why I look at could we take a different approach around you know, a, a, a more robust justice system that um, recognises the risk that people pose sufficiently and supports lawful road users prior to that serious life-changing or fatal collision taking place. OK, last question, and then I'll, I'll let you get on with your, your busy days. So this might not be a question for Andy, unless he wants to pitch in, because it's more of a a general issue on, on, on car culture as a whole, really. But this is a, a, a bit of a scoop today that I, I did a story on the, the basically the Heathrow um, legal team that successfully challenged the government to stop Heathrow expansion has now today going to be doing uh, the exact same legal challenge, but for the £28 billion road building programme in, in the UK. So I've got that story online right now. It will get bigger, I'm sure, when other media outlets uh, uh, pick up on it too and when they get their crowdfunding. But coming to Chris first, one of the points uh, or one of the things that they want to, to, to stress is that £28 billion, which are currently pledged by Rishi Sunak, ought to be spent on public transport, cycling and walking instead. Will that challenge work? Maybe. The message hasn't changed in the last year. Do we want more cars filling up the roads? Because that's what happens. We see evidence of that from all around the world so it's crazy. 
Now might be the best opportunity we'll get to not spend on things we don't really need. I know in Greater Manchester that the tram network cost a lot of money, and it was paying for itself but now the revenue's dried up. But it's not dissimilar to other urban authorities around the country that have got bills that need to be paid, and forms of transport that are more desirable so to divert that cash seems absolutely logical. When you can't afford to pay all your bills, pay the one that's most pressing. So it's an opportunity to rethink transport spend, full stop. We've got a scenario not to give cash to the mode that's doing harm and spend it elsewhere. Mm, and Rachel. Oh. <laughs> yeah. uh, Rachel, kind of the same question to you, but given the fact that the governments around the world, but certainly the UK government, is going to have to be spending billions upon billions, it is our cash, I suppose, but still, spending billions upon billions to dig us out of this this pandemic hole and the fact that you've got to pay people who are being furloughed and all these different uh, funds that are going to have to be found from somewhere, given the fact that the the government in the future is not going to have uh, huge amounts of cash to splash around, do you think the road building programme, that £27, billion, do you think that is the ripest of all government departments to, that's easiest to chop, let's just let's just quash that, that road building programme? Well, it would certainly go a long way in terms of building active travel infrastructure, which is not cheap, um, but is value for money. So, um, yes, and I think now, you know, we are seeing the government stepping in in a whole range of ways that seemed impossible to imagine not that long ago. So I think potentially with support for businesses, support for employment and so on can come some thinking, some public debate about, you know, the best use of resources, um, for instance, around freight and delivery and so on and what we actually want to see this money used for and yes I would agree that the that that amount of money allocated to a road building budget should definitely be up for grabs in terms of sustainable transport we'll need it thank you to my guests Chris Boardman Superintendent Andy Cox and Professor Rachel yeah thanks computer voice I'll take over from here so anyway yes it's uh, thanks to Professor Rachel Aldred Superintendent Andy Cox and Chris Boardman This has been episode 248 of the Spokesman Cycling Podcast. Sorry it has taken uh, me so long to get this audio to you, but Chris's uh, recording really was quite unusable. Uh, Thankfully, everybody else had pristine audio, so I was able to resurrect the group chat. Now, I hope you enjoyed listening to Chris, played by a computer simulation. The next show will be out real soon and is a conversation I had last week with the deputy leader of Waltham Forest Council, Clyde Lokes. He showed me the now world-famous Orford Road Mini Holland Scheme, but we also cycled elsewhere in the borough to see how it is being transformed. And it is being transformed, and very much for the better. Significantly, Clyde was voted in again on an increased majority, showing that politicians need not be afraid of putting people first and taming car use. It's a great episode. Meanwhile, get out there and ride.